0: I'm Kendall Giles, and this is the Techno Slipstream podcast, where we explore what you need to know about the intersection of science, technology, and society. This is episode 13. So just one quick announcement. If you can, please head over to patreon.com slash Kendall Giles and sign up to support the show. Your support on Patreon can help me provide more show in terms of the quality of the podcast episodes and quantity, as well as additional writings and other activities I'm planning behind the scenes. Thank you to those who have supported so far. I really appreciate it. Now, with that out of the way, here's the show. This fall semester, I'm teaching an undergraduate course titled Computational Engineering. The purpose of this course is to help new sophomores understand the elements for how not only software is developed, but also how to solve problems computationally, including abstract thinking, modeling, simulation, data analysis, and visualization. In the first lecture of the semester, a student asked if computational thinking was the same or similar to the scientific method. Now, you've probably heard about this famous method called the scientific method. You've got some research question or problem, so you formulate a hypothesis or conjecture that challenges some default-held scientific belief through some sort of prediction or explanation that is tested via an experiment. The results of the experiment are to be interpreted by the scientist as contradicting or not the expectations of the default scientific prediction, which the scientist would use as support for their conclusion. This, of course, is very high-level, and each science field uses their own methods. There is no one set of scientific method steps that applies to all scientific fields. But to the student's question, setting aside comparisons to computational thinking, I want to highlight that there is a common public understanding that this scientific method is a standard universal set of rules that anyone can follow in order to produce scientific knowledge. Contrast this idea that the scientific method is some infallible set of rules with the famous paper by John Ioannidis titled, Why Most Published Research Findings Are False. The paper discusses evidence that many scientific studies are difficult, if not impossible, to reproduce or replicate. So on one hand, we have the understanding that the scientific method leads to objective facts about nature. And, on the other hand, we have evidence that this method is not exactly standard or universal, and that scientific facts may not be facts at all. While certainly there can be experimental methodological reasons why scientific results may vary and in how scientific knowledge is created in the laboratory, there are also scientific cultural reasons as well. Moreover... This endless focus on methodology over the years has not cleaned up the reproducibility crisis in science. So, it is these cultural reasons that I want to explore in today's podcast episode by looking at the paper Laboratory Studies The Cultural Approach to the Study of Science by Karen Nor Satina. Okay, let's dive in. Nora Satina is the Otto Borschert Distinguished Service Professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Chicago, and she also has a joint appointment in the Department of Anthropology. Her current focus is studying financial markets, knowledge and information, and globalization theory and culture, though a lot of her early work focused on laboratory studies. In the past, researchers studying how scientists produce knowledge largely divided into two categories, the study of scientific controversies and the study of unfinished knowledge, what nor Satina calls knowledge that is yet in the process of being constituted. Researchers from that second category eventually settled in the 1970s on what we call today laboratory studies. Their research methods were empirical, largely utilizing ethnography or participant observation of the scientists at work in their laboratories. And I just want to emphasize the laboratory in laboratory studies. To these researchers, the laboratory is a theoretical concept, allowing them to raise questions such as, what is the theoretical power of the notion of a lab? How is the lab different from the older notion of experiment on which historians and philosophers of science placed a premium? And What do laboratory studies mean when they claim that scientific facts are constructed in these settings? So, to most people who know anything about the scientific method, the experiment has long been heralded as a fundamental component for how knowledge is created. There's a whole methodological machinery that is supposed to be followed when setting up the experiments to help scientists be confident in their empirical results. There are actually a lot of problems with the way some experiments are conducted, but that's maybe for a different podcast episode. Also, I haven't seen a lot of research done on how experiments are actually conducted versus how they are idealized in the scientific method. So maybe that's also another fruitful research avenue. So if we set aside the focus of experimental methodology, you have all the various activities and technologies and practices that scientists do when doing science in the laboratory. For example, scientists use certain pieces of equipment to set up an experiment. They write down measurements or observations in a notebook using special symbols and drawings. They speak to or argue with others in the lab. They read certain papers. They write their own papers. They visit other labs. They hire staff. They have offices of different sizes. They avoid working with certain colleagues. All of these activities make up the culture of science, which is different than the scientific experiment. Also, the outcome of all these cultural activities is an agreement, a consensus, that the scientists have produced knowledge. Thus, Nora Satina says, If the practices observed in laboratories were cultural in the sense that they could not be reduced the application of methodological rules, the facts that were the consequence of these practices also had to be seen as shaped by culture. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast, you could compare laboratory studies to organizational studies, such as episode 10 of this podcast where we looked at two organizational studies of robots being used in organizations. But note, That there, the focus was on how the use of the robot affected the worker roles and the relationships with other workers. We were not concerned about the robot as a technology. So what makes laboratory studies different is that here the focus is on how knowledge is produced in the lab and the laboratory structures and practices that play a role in that knowledge production. The laboratory, then, just as with the experiment, is itself a factor in scientific development and in the success of science. I don't want to get too philosophical, but the laboratory is a unique place where scientists don't actually study reality or the real world. Instead, the laboratory is essentially a virtual world where scientists use improved, cleaned, denoised, summarized extracted, or purified objects from the real world. For example, the scientist does not study plants growing in the ground in a forest. Instead, they look at cells from those plants under a microscope in an air-conditioned lab, sheltered from the sun, wind, rain, and pests. Similarly, astronomers look at images on their computer that are reconstructed, colorized, and translated into the visible spectrum from signals collected from their telescopes, pointed at distant objects in the sky. They don't actually go to those different galaxies. Thus, scientists in the lab don't actually need to deal with the actual object. They sample from the object as needed to get a form amenable to the lab. And also note that the scientist in the lab does not need to deal with the object in the object's natural environment. The lab is not nature. Finally, The timing of the natural processes an object is involved with in nature is different from the timing the scientist experiences in the lab. The scientist can manipulate or repeat events of interest that relate to the object in the artificial world of the laboratory. So far, we've discussed what makes laboratory studies different from studies of experimental methodologies and different from organizational studies. We've also discussed how scientists in the lab do not actually engage with objects as they are in nature. There is an extraction and purification process that lets scientists study objects or processes in an idealized state. If science is all about the production of knowledge, the next piece is to discuss how knowledge is produced in the laboratory. And the key here is the idea of constructionism. Simply put, nor Satina says, constructionism holds reality not to be given, but constructed. What? You might exclaim. I thought science was all about scientific discoveries, not scientific constructions. Okay, there's a lot more nuance about this in the paper, but the basic idea behind constructionism is that science depends on direct observation and descriptions of a phenomena by a scientist. And thus, there is the natural material reality on the one hand, and there is a sort of transcription of that reality by the processes and mechanisms of science on the other hand. The knowledge produced in the lab, the scientific facts, come out of that transcription of reality. That is the essence of constructionism. One way we might better understand why we use the construction metaphor is to note that rather than set rules and processes, almost every aspect of science and knowledge that is produced is actually a negotiation. Nor Satina lists several examples of negotiation explored in specific published studies. Who is a good scientist and what is an appropriate method? What one sees on an autoradiograph film and what one does not see. What is the best environment for good physics? And what counts as a proper experimental replication? In scientific knowledge production, all artifacts, processes, and results are up for negotiation. Consensus must be formed, for example, with other scientists and workers in the lab, with funding agencies, with lab equipment vendors, with government agencies, with scientists in other labs, and with Peer reviewers. Knowledge production in the lab is thus a technical, social, economic, and political process. That is, in part, what we mean when we say scientific knowledge is constructed, as opposed to being discovered. Okay, now to the question of the hour How are facts constructed in the science laboratory? Let's look at the fundamental elements. First, we need to understand that there is no epistemological difference between the pursuit of knowledge in the laboratory versus, say, the pursuit of power. The ebbs and flows of power in an organization has been empirically studied for years. But if the pursuit of knowledge is fundamentally different, epistemologically speaking, then perhaps we can't empirically study how knowledge is created. However, after analysis, there is nothing special about how knowledge is produced. Therefore, empirical study is an appropriate means of study. Second, we've earlier discussed constructionism and how every aspect of scientific knowledge production is open for negotiation. Nora Satina says, negotiation, more than other concepts, highlights the social character of the process of knowledge production. This means the construction of scientific knowledge, scientific facts, often depends on rhetoric and the scientist's skills of persuasion, as well as any technical merits of the experimental results, and the scientist's resulting observations and interpretations. For example, a scientist will write up their experimental results using the passive voice to stress the objective aspects of the experiment rather than the subjective interpretations of the scientist. And persuasion also comes into play when results are disputed among scientists or between scientists and funding agencies, for example. Finally, certain results and graphics may be used, rather than others, to persuade the reader of the resulting scientific publication. As a third element of how scientific facts are constructed, there is the element of the local. In other words, there is a common public notion that scientific processes are standard and universal. However, time and again, from empirical data gathered from laboratory studies, Local resources, skills, and cultures affect the scientific results and the ways they are interpreted. This means that scientific results are not independent artifacts, facts of nature, but are properties of the laboratory setting in which they are constructed. All of these elements for how scientific facts are constructed mean that, according to Norisatina, the establishment of a scientific or technical object depends not on the inherent usefulness or truthfulness of the result, but on whether one succeeds in building a structure of associations between parties enrolled through mutual definitions that hold up. Therefore, it is these social, cultural, and local aspects of how scientific knowledge is created that is the focus of what we call laboratory studies. If you are familiar with the various genres of fiction, horror, science fiction, fantasy, literary, romance, hopefully from today's discussion, you now have a better idea of the purpose and characteristics of the laboratory study genre. And in order to make these ideas concrete, in our next podcast episode, we will look at a specific canonical example of a laboratory study. However, for now, that wraps up episode 13 of the Techno Slipstream podcast. Thank you for listening. And right now, please head over to patreon.com slash Giles to our Patreon page to sign up to support the show. You can sign up to receive the show transcripts, including links to the articles and books discussed in each episode, as well as additional writings, such as the new live stream guides. In any case, thank you again for listening. And until next time, I'll see you in the techno slipstream.